0: What up? what up Jimmy Murray here with Frank petalano and we are the cash flow Kings the cash flow Kings podcast discusses money finance mindset and investing with an emphasis on cash flowing real estate
1: thanks for joining the cash flow Kings and welcome to our new episode 12 steps to becoming an apartment addict with Ashley Wilson we're here to help you crush your goals
0: so guys I think we've got a really exciting guest on the show today in Ashley um, she requires large apartment complexes and has a phenomenal coaching program as well. Um, so Ashley, welcome to the
2: show. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No doubt. No doubt. So Ashley, I know that you know. prior to getting on the podcast, we talked about um, a couple of recent deals that you've tackled, but how did you get started with apartments and syndications?
2: Great question. So I actually started in real estate about 13 years ago. I started with house hacking and then that transitioned into short-term rentals, long-term rentals, eventually flipping and high-end flipping, and then finally landed in commercial uh, in the multifamily space. I started in large multifamily. I didn't do the stacking method, which is going from like a duplex to a quad 16 unit, um, which is more traditional, I think, um, in terms of how people scale to that 100 plus unit size. I was able to leverage my experience with construction. My father is a general contractor, so I grew up in construction, both on the residential and the commercial side. I had high visibility into the inner workings. Then with starting our single family flipping business, we focused on heavy lifts. So we focused on uh, late 1800s to probably 1960 was our sweet spot. In terms of the houses, we targeted full gut rehab. So it was a crash course, on-hands experience of learning construction firsthand and then growing up in the industry. So I had a level of confidence with dealing with construction management. I was speaking to a uh, colleague of mine within the space and mentioned that I wanted to get into commercial real estate and I thought I could leverage my skill set of construction management They just happened to be under contract with a 124 unit property that needed a little over 2 million in renovation. They had no experience with construction. So they welcomed the opportunity for us to partner together um, and take it on. And I did. And I also fell into the asset management role of the property. So I started to learn very quickly how to do both and how they both work really well together and kind of the rest is history.
0: Love that. Also, kind of starting on the flip game with 1880s and 1960s inventory. Uh, <laughs> that's I our standard inventory. To New England know that pain. Um, <laughs> I could just recently sold. I had a four unit that was built in 1860, at least per the property card. So, uh old properties. It's never a dull day.
1: Something I don't own. I don't own any happened. property newer than 1960 locally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's our standard mix. You know, most of mine are 1910, yeah. 1920. So talk about
0: trial by fire on the older inventory, but I'm sure that you learned a wealth of knowledge in dealing with those assets.
2: The thing about focusing on assets that everyone turns away at is you can become very niche and you eliminate yep. your competition. So in terms of your acquisition price and the upside that you have, you have greater upside going into that deal than other people have at Just even a 1961 vintage because people on the single family side and commercial side people are still gun shy about going into these older vintages because there's a lot of capital dollars that need to be spent to reposition that don't have an roi factor but if you consider that the upside is your your price per door you're going in price per door and you factor that in on your evaluation because you have less competition competition drives, uh, pricing, right? It compresses cap rates and it drives pricing. So if you're able to get in on a higher cap rate entry point, and you've factored in this CapEx spend, you can really have a huge upside when you go to sell
1: hundred percent. Ashley, how long ago was that 124 unit you were talking about?
2: That was in 2018. We acquired that and we actually just sold it in December.
1: Nice. A nice full cycle one, I'm sure. it's a Good time yes. the market. And your expertise, I'm sure, helped a lot. Um, how have you grown your business since then? I mean, I, I personally, disclaimer, have invested in your deals before. so And uh, I love what you do. Uh, I Thank am, you. It's, it's great to have you as a GP on a team. Let's put it that way.
2: Thank you so much. When I first started, I didn't really realize what... Position I would find myself in. In fact, I actually thought I would go the partnership route and I would just find deals that were in distress that people already owned or were looking to acquire. And I would just manage asset and construction management of those deals. So that way I didn't have to focus on raising capital. I didn't have to focus on sourcing. I could just leverage my skill set that I already have. Uh what I quickly realized is that um, there are a lot of deals that people have struggled to operate. And mm, I would say 90% of the time is because they underwrote too aggressively. So what I quickly realized is that while the underwriting um, is what gets you into a deal, the reputation gets attributed to the asset manager on how that business plan is executed. And frankly, I didn't want that reputation of something that I couldn't control. My name was tied to it because I'm dealing with the day-to-day operations. I'm working with the property management team, the construction, the contractors. So I found in the 70 plus deals that were sent to me, that there were about six of them I consulted on. I was willing to help steer course correct Uh, where I thought they were going wrong and I was brought in as a consultant on all of those deals. And then there was only one deal that I actually wanted to move forward and partner with um, because I felt that the underwriting was uh, very strong for that property. Um, But I realized because of that situation and I put myself in that situation that it might be more opportunistic to underwrite deals myself and to find deals myself. So it took a, a while to actually execute and find a deal. One is because I am way more conservative than most people. I think um, a lot of people probably say it, but they actually don't mean it. When, you're, when you actually get a deal under contract and lenders are telling you you're way too conservative, I think that's a sign that you're way too conservative. And I've had that feedback from lenders, lending institutions are saying. Not a
0: bad spot to be in though. Right. It, no,
2: no, not at all. They really want to lend to you <laughs> because right. they know how conservative you are. Um, you know, one of our properties right now, we have a, um, which is in the gallery of Houston, a class market, we have a six exit cap. So, um, you know, current uh, comparable properties are trading at the three, five to a three, seven, five range in that same sub market. So, you um, I mean, that's an extreme. That was, you know, that's also a factor of COVID. So I don't want to, you know, pat ourselves on the back for that one because, you know, it could have gone the other way. Um, but I just think that, um, knowing who you are and sticking to your morals and sticking to your ethics, if you continually do that and just continue to show up every day, it will happen. Um, my husband uh, was a professional ice hockey player and he played with this guy from Russia. And uh, my husband was in a bit of a scoring drought and the, the teammate said to him, it's like ketchup. And my husband's like, what are you talking about? And it's like, if you continue to hit the bottle, it eventually all comes out. Um, so that's kind of what I like to think of our business too. We're not constantly acquiring properties, but when we do, um, it's because we believe in the conservative underwriting behind them right
1: i'm just laughing at the whole aggressive conservative i agree with you 100 um i know i mean obviously between the two of us we know hundreds of people that have gp'd or syndicated deals and every single one tells me that they're always conservative i know yours are because i've invested in your deals (laughs) but i'm just saying nobody goes out there and says that we're aggressive but you and i both see it i mean when you're trying to um double check the sale price and you're like oh yeah well we're going we're, we're planning on selling at an exit cap of 3.9 it's like you can't you have to be more conservative than that you know especially with interest rates moving up right now
2: right i completely agree with you and just to kind of stem off that the other component right now that we're seeing is we're in a very, um, inflationary period in the market cycle. And yep. a lot of people are writing to that inflation. We are not. So we are missing out on deals left and right, because even though all of our data says that the next year to two years, let's say it averages 8% of rental appreciation of natural appreciation, not force, but natural appreciation that'll occur over the next two years. What's interesting is that we don't rest on those data points. We actually still scale back and say 3%, but what's also interesting about that um, that more aggressive underwriting approach is they're also failing to underwrite their expenses to that same inflationary rate. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to be aggressive on the income side, you can't forget the expense side. So we like to be conservative on both. We know that our expenses are going up. We know that income is going up too, but we want to kind of net zero those two, because at the end of the day, they two work typically hand in hand, historically, they've worked hand in hand. So it's great to show these great rental gains, but Uh, I would rather, you know, everyone uses a saying and I hate it because it's overused, but under promise over deliver. So, but I actually mean it. And we're very transparent with our offerings. We show what we're underwriting, what our assumptions are. So people know and can see the numbers and and feel comfortable that we have several layers of conservative uh, elements in our underwriting.
1: You're not underwriting 15% rent growth? No. For the, 3 years in a row.
2: <laughs> no. The most I can tell you the most we have underwritten for rental growth over the past year on we've underwritten over 200 properties over the past year is 4% most. And I know this because I also review every single underwriting prior to submitting an offer.
0: Smart. So, as you go through the transaction you talk like obviously we're talking about the underwriting on the front end. Um but for folks that aren't as familiar with syndication, like what makes you guys decide, okay, it's time to sell this asset?
2: That's another great question. I always like to say that if you're truly managing an asset, you are always putting your investors first and your investors return and the max maximizing their dollar is the most important thing that you need to focus on. So while I can pitch a business plan with a three to five year hold, if I am not constantly in touch with the market, in touch with cap rates, in touch with uh, interest rates, I can miss the boat for my investors. And that's not why they invested with us. They invested with us because there's confidence in the fact that we are constantly monitoring when the most opportunistic time to sell is. There are a lot of different measures in multifamily and across any type of investment on how to gauge what is a solid return. So there are cash on cash, internal rate of return, average annual return, multiplier. And at the end of the day, while most people don't understand the formula behind it and to be honest i and most people have to plug it into a calculator or excel spreadsheet but the internal rate of return is the strongest measure because it takes into consideration this component of time so when you get your money back and it's kind of goes along with the old uh, riddle if you win the lottery do you take one lump sum today or do you take it paid out in weekly installments. And most people who aren't very savvy with you know, investing and aren't open to or exposed to have these opportunities in front of them might say, oh, I might take the weekly inheritance option. But the money that you get today, even though it might be less in that um, analogy, you can put that money to work. And if you use, for example, the rule of 72, which is the concept of how quickly your money multiplies based off of a fixed interest rate, you can actually make more money over a shorter period of time. So we take that whole concept and we apply that to our investing strategy. So we are constantly changing our business plan. We might come in and say, we're going to renovate all of the units, but we might get in and realize that it was more of a management play than we had initially intended. And we don't have to spend those CapEx dollars on interior renovations. We alternatively might say, we need to push this a little bit more, or we need to offer different social programs to the community. But all of that we look at and we're constantly monitoring the market. And a quarterly basis at best, or at minimum, sorry, at minimum, we are looking at whether or not it's advantageous to sell. In the environment we find ourselves in today, we're actually looking at a monthly basis because things are moving so quickly, um, especially with changing of interest rates, with everything that's going on, you know, and the global economy too, with Ukraine and Russia. I mean, there are a lot of different factors that could impact our economy. So we are constantly looking, surveying the best return for our investors.
0: Makes sense.
1: Right now I'm an LP in nine deals and three of them are at some stage of selling. So I I know what you mean. You know, and at the same point, then the LPs or the investors on the other side have to say, oh my God, what am I going to do next with my money?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great point. And I think too, when you look at compression of cap rates, people are attributing it every, everything, uh, the whole impact of compression of cap rates to interest rates. But I think that's not the entire story. I think part of the story is this 1031 money that you're talking about. So all of a sudden, everyone's selling, where's this money going? The money needs to be reinvested. So right. a few weeks ago, I was talking to an investor who was going to be taxed 3 million if the, the money wasn't placed by middle of April. Um, so they were willing to actually spend 2 million over the um, you know, whatever market rate was, because the alternative was they would lose 3 million. So at least to come out, you know, ahead, so to speak, to have another property, they actually saw that very advantageous. I would as well. Um, So there is money chasing uh, different opportunities because of this whole idea of you need to keep your money at work. So that obviously increases the pricing as well.
0: That totally makes sense. And I love how you paired that, right? Like interest rates is a part of the equation, but not the whole answer, Mm -hmm. right? Because I'm like you or like that investor that you spoke about. Am I going to pay Uncle Sam 3 million or would I rather overpay for an asset? Now I have an asset and I don't have to pay those taxes, but I still have that, you know, my asset invested.
2: Yeah.
1: What's one of the biggest challenges you have in your business right now?
2: The biggest challenge we have right now is we have more properties being sent to us than we have the bandwidth to underwrite.
1: Great problem to have.
2: (laughs) It's the first time it's ever happened. And um, it's in part because everyone's selling. Um, It's also in part because everyone's selling without going full market cycle, like full marketing not market cycle in terms of the economy, <clears throat> but marketing they're, they're of a property. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people are uh, typical on market properties, on market five to six weeks. People are selling pre-market. Um, so in terms of how many deals I look at, I probably look at a minimum of five deals a day, seven days a week, minimum. And I'm only managing one market so my acquisitions team, we're in nine different markets. Um, so just extrapolate that over. And I, and I can't even handle the deals I'm getting. Um, I have someone else uh, handling the spillover um, just because we have too many coming at us.
0: So what do you think would cause that deal flow to slow down?
2: a few things. Um, so one other component that I think that's impacting the cap rate compression is foreign investors, uh, coming into the market. And that is historically been, um, an opportunity for foreign capital to come in, but I think it's even more so now because, uh, their dollar is going further, um, than it has historically. So, um, I think if we impose, there are, um, uh, tax laws and um, deterrences that, for example, the Canadian government has placed, which has slowed foreign capital coming in. I also think, too, obviously, interest rates, if interest rates go up significantly, I don't claim to be an economist. Um, I, I'm not saying they are. I'm not saying they aren't. I'm just saying uh, interest rates are typically tied historically to um uh, cap rate compression. So if historic rates go up, ex- cap rates expand, maybe people aren't looking to sell. The reason so many people are looking to sell right now is because the cap rates are most likely less than what they perform at. And because multifamily evaluation there are three ways to evaluate multifamily, but the most common way to evaluate multifamily is through the NOI method. And that is directly tied to the trading cap rate in that submarket. As soon as cap rates expand, then you obviously have less opportunity for people to buy. Um, but there are a lot of private equity firms that have a lot of idle capital that they will easily have just sitting with an asset-backed investment, and also, to the tax advantages. So if things like that, all that infrastructure changes, the tax advantages change, um, there are definitely um, potential for shifting of the market.
0: Got it. That makes sense.
1: I'm thinking about some of the, especially European investors where they're dealing with negative interest rates. So uh, we worry about the cap rate compression and being at like a 3% cap rate. I mean, what are they going to do? Put their money in the bank, which is paying 0% or even less, right?
2: Absolutely. Actually, um, a few years ago, Brandon Turner um, from Bigger Pockets was talking to me about this and he was talking about where he saw the future of US investing in a real estate investing when it um how, how it correlates or how it mirrors the european investing opportunities and to your point he was speaking exactly of that situation is we're still buying the environment we find ourselves in there's still a huge upside on the sale and um that appreciation and compression of cap rates but when you get to a certain point you might just be investing off of cash flow and it might be limited cash flow and you're okay with it. It's really interesting how perspectives change. I think if you ask any investor five years ago, what should you have done more of? I should have purchased more things. What should you have done 10 years ago? I should have purchased more things. Even during the recession, what should you have done more? I should have purchased more things. Every single investor will always look back and say, I should have bought more. And that whole concept is it's all relative to where we see ourselves today. What is that gonna look like in five years from now? We're probably gonna say, I was too conservative. I should have i should have bought more.
1: I'm thinking at the last top, even though uh, prices came way down from the last top, most numbers are still over it. You know.
2: I mean, I think it just gets into the fundamentals of basic economics, which is supply and demand. There's only so much land that we have. We can't create additional land. I was speaking earlier today and there we were talking about virtual real estate and my thoughts on that. Maybe maybe that's a nuance to it. But the only challenge to the whole supply and demand is the tie in of population growth. So as long as our population continues to grow, which it's actually not, so people should be concerned about it. I don't think it's going to happen in all, all of our lifetimes, but it is something long-term, you know, that we should be concerned about because if population starts declining, then obviously people don't need as many places to live, people don't need as many places to shop. You know, all of the trickle-down effect happens, and in that situation, then is real estate a good long-term investment 50 years from now? Is multifamily a good long-term investment? I don't know. I I actually think where we are today, it might not be good in 50 years or 100 years, Um, but it is an interesting concept to think about how it ties to population growth. For sure.
1: So I think you have uh, some kind of, uh, I mean, the name of the, this is 12 steps. Can you help us on some of those steps that you have for this uh, uh, being an apartment addict like you are, Ashley?
2: Absolutely. So the first step is kind of just the foundation. So like anything in real estate, you have to have some sort of pun involved. And the pun is you have to have a foundation. You have to have real estate knowledge. So spend your time kind of learning the terminology, the concepts, what you're looking to achieve, understand the business side of multifamily, because at the end of the day, you're buying a business. The bonus is you get real estate attached to it. So that's step one. Step two is market selection. You have the option to invest in your backyard or the option to long distance invest. My entire real estate career has actually been primarily long distance real estate investing. Even when I started my flipping company, I was living in Europe and Russia, but I was investing in the area in which I grew up in. Um, So understanding your market, picking the right market for you, understanding the different factors in the market, that's step two. Next is building your team. So you want to have the right people. You can take Any investment, I don't care how great the returns say they're going to be. I don't care how great the market is. But if the team is not the right team, it will crush the deal. And the alternative can happen. You can have a mediocre market. You can have a mediocre deal, which is dynamite because the team is just absolutely incredible and is able to squeeze as much juice out of that lemon. Next is finding the properties. So you know the market, now you got to drill down, you got to find the properties. So what type of property you're looking at? We started the conversation talking about early you know, 1900s properties. Maybe that's your sweet spot. Maybe your sweet spot is 1990s, but you need to identify what type of properties you're looking for, how many units, what type of build. Do you like high rises? Do you like garden style? Do you like mid rise? Those are things that you want to figure out. The next step is underwriting those properties. Underwriting involves a bit of science and a bit of art. So the science side of it, excuse me, is understanding industry, Norms and also submarket norms in terms of performing out the expenses and the income. But it's also a bit of an art, too, because you have to understand the market, the market comps, be able to do rental comp analysis and do projections on what you think you can get, how much you have to spend in terms of capital expenses to improve the property if you're buying a value add versus a stabilized property. The next is submitting offers. So once you've done the underwriting, you want to be able to submit offers. This is inclusive of knowing the entire process. Commercial real estate, unlike residential real estate, is completely different. Commercial real estate is a wild, wild west. We don't have laws that govern transactions. You can be as creative as you want in structuring a deal and structuring an offer, which makes commercial real estate very interesting and very dynamic next is the capital stack so the capital stack is kind of broken down into two parts so it's actually the next two steps the first part of the capital stack is the debt side so with debt you're looking at what options do you have for leveraging the most amount of your capital stack so you have the greatest purchasing power so with debt You have options, for example, like bridge loans, or you have government back loans. government back loans tend to be the most favorable in terms of loan terms, but they also have some catches to them as well. So understanding that and making sure whatever property type you're purchasing matches the debt structure, because you need that when you're underwriting the property, as they all have different interest rates attached to them. The second part of the capital stack, so this is uh, step eight, is the equity side. The equity side is either going to come from you, it's going to come from a JV partner, syndication. There are several different options. Even a seller can carry back a note and provide the equity on the property so you don't have to have any money out of pocket. Understanding all the different strategies allows you to be the most competitive with your offer because The equity side is the most expensive part of your capital stack, and your purchasing power is directly correlated to your cost of capital. So lowering the cost of capital on the equity side will allow you to greatly enhance your ability to purchase properties. Next is once you have a property under contract. So when you have a property under contract, you're gonna go through all the due diligence, you're going to verify your assumptions, you're gonna cross-check and audit the financials on that property, the actual property itself, maybe you do a sewer line scope, maybe you check the roofs, you're gonna walk every unit, you're gonna walk all common areas, and you're gonna walk that with a team that you've already put together because that was a few steps earlier. And then during that process, you're going to validate all of your performa, uh, you know, your projections so that you can make sure you can move forward with the deal. And when you find something, you have the option then to, if there's some sort of challenge to your projections, you can either see if there's a way in which you can still massage the deal and get the deal to work by your current underwriting projections. You can, try to what is called retrade in the industry, go back and ask for the seller to concess. Or last, but obviously not the most favorable outcome is you might need to walk from the deal because it might not be a good deal anymore. For example, if there are major structural issues to the property and the seller's not willing to give a concession, um, you might need to walk from the deal because it might not be profitable anymore. Step 10 involves asset management, which means you have now closed on the property and you are actually operating the property. You are taking the property through whatever business plan you have, you've identified. So if it's a stabilized property, keep it performing as is. But if it is a value add, you are doing some sort of reposition of the property. And that involves different stages, communication across all different groups. So your property management team, your construction team, Your um, general partners, your investors, you want to be very clear um, about all of the communication that's going on so everyone's on the same page and can execute together and they understand why they are executing so they think in that manner. If you are having a property and you just want a three to five year hold and the, um, the roof only needs a patch. And otherwise the roof's in great condition and probably can last 10 years. You don't need a full roof replacement. If you have a patch, uh, uh, an area that's leaking and a patch will do, but you're holding the property long term, let's say for 20 years, maybe you want to just re-roof the property at that point. It really depends on your own business plan, how decisions are governed. Next is construction management. This ties hand in hand with asset management. And that is an example I just gave where you're managing construction, but it ties into the business plan of the asset management. So construction management, you wanna make sure that you are taking care of safety issues, but then you're also too looking for items for ROI. So that's the construction management piece. And then finally, you have a capital event. So this could either be a sale, refinance, or both but you are then going to um, either return capital uh, to your investors, return of initial capital or on their initial capital. Um, and then also at sale, you will do the same thing as well. So those are really the 12 steps from soup to nuts of getting involved in multifamily. And also to it parallels very, uh well with
1: the life cycle of a property. Love <laughs> <laughs> uh question for you can you give an example of uh the creativity aspect like uh Jimmy and I have done some residential flips and I think we've been pretty creative on some of them and uh, I know some of the creative jobs th- things that you've done on the commercial side but if you can just share one just to help either, um, just open people's minds or blow their mind. Just an example of something you've done creative.
2: We have a property. I've several different ones, but hopefully this is what you're speaking to. So
1: just pick pick one just to help people understand and open their mind.
2: So we have a property that has a lot of different garden areas. It did. I'll say it did have a lot of garden areas and, um, it didn't have a lot of, uh, open community areas for the residents to actually um, have, you know, uh, coffee outside or meet with friends. Um, so we took these garden areas when we first came into the property and we realized to continue having these garden areas, we would first of all have to do repairs to the irrigation system, which was $3,600. And then we had to Continue to bring out the landscaper to make sure that these garden areas were taken care of monthly, but then we had to do a tune up on a quarterly basis and then we also had the water usage to keep the plants lively. By removing all of these garden areas, we eliminated that entire expense. And then we created areas for residents to have seating areas and coffee, you know, which carries zero dollars except the continue, you know, paint like regular RM or repair and maintenance costs of keeping it up to date, but we didn't have this. Continued ongoing expense. I forget the exact added value to the property, but it was over three hundred thousand dollars added evaluation by just removing these gardens. And the garden removal was like I think it was like six grand. So by investing wow. six grand, we reduced our our um, expenses. So we're increasing the cash flow. And in addition to that, because your NOI. So we're reducing an expense, your, your NOI goes up. And then in terms of, you know, coupled with the cap rate, and to be honest, that was back when the cap rate was five. So it's probably even higher now. I mean, I know it's higher because we have a compression cap rate. And when you decrease a line item like that, you can have exponential return. So it's not even just thinking kind of like, how do we um, just remove an expense, but how do we remove an expense, provide a benefit to the tenants, because they don't want to see things constantly being removed, you still have to provide some sort of benefit, but then also to benefit the investors. So that was a situation in which everyone won.
1: That's awesome. I'm thinking of like the dog parks, and the patios for people to sit in and stuff like that. Yeah, you, you really out of the tenant amenity there and save money by doing it. Yeah, great, perfect. All right, let's see. Uh, Three questions that we ask all of our guests. The first one is, if someone wants to become a better investor, what would you recommend?
2: The thing that everyone does when they look to be investor, I'm assuming you're asking in a passive capacity. Either way. I'll start with passive. Thing everyone does when they look for a passive is they look at the deal first and they look at the return numbers. The second thing they do is they look at the market. The third thing they do is look at the team. That is the complete opposite way you should do it. I said it earlier in the call that you should always look at the team uh, the power of the team. The team is the most important thing that you are investing in. You might think you're investing in the property. You're actually investing in the team. The team is the one who's going to be able to actually execute the property isn't property is going to be there no matter who's running it, but then why not have the best people running it? So always invest in the team, understand the team's experience. Have they worked together before? Are they investing in the deal themselves? what their track record is, what their track record is in that market, what their track record is with that property management company. Has that property management company managed a similar property? What if that property management company is amazing, but they've only, only run you know new construction build properties and they've never done a value add? Do you really think that that is the safest bet for your investment? I always find it ironic that when I was in single family, it was so hard. Not that I was looking; uh, we actually used our own capital. But my colleagues were constantly looking for people to invest in their single-family deals, and they could hardly find someone. And they were actually experienced in construction, but yet when you extrapolate that across a hundred units, across multi-million dollars in construction, across a three to five-year hold, everyone's like. Where do I sign my $100,000 check over to? And it's crazy to me that people are so uh, diligent in the single family side of investing and investing passively with someone who's managing a single family project, but not as diligent when they look at large multifamily opportunities. I think you have to be not only as diligent, but more diligent. In terms of what you're looking for, because you are extrapolating it over 100 units you're extrapolating over a larger amount of money and also a longer time period. So that's what I would say to passive investors for active investors. I think the hardest part about being an active investor is staying focused. People gravitate to real estate because they're entrepreneurs by spirit and entrepreneurs look for opportunities. And you might say, well, it's all within the same wheelhouse. Well, single family and owning a self-storage is not the same. And owning a strip mall is not the same everything you do in real estate, you can be successful at absolutely everything. And that's what makes it so intriguing for people to jump to these different asset classes. But what you'll find are the best real estate investors are the people who stay focused and stay on one asset class and master that asset class and master that business before bringing on another arm to their business and maybe duplicating it to another asset class.
1: I think you'll slap my hand on that one, but <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I try to
1: invest with people that are the experts more than, than that, but yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, next question is, what is uh, one book that you've uh, read recently that you consider a must read?
2: Oh, one book that I've read recently. I'm actually, I've been pretty bad about reading. It was a New Year's resolution. I am reading Cashflow Quadrant. I don't know if it's the best book I've read, but it is a very good book. Um, It has some great principles in it. Um, Anything Robert Kiyosaki puts out, I mean, how can you go wrong uh, with it? Rich Dad, Poor Dad is still my all-time favorite, life-changing books. I don't think I've ever read a book that has changed my life more than Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, so I'll, I'll just go with Cashflow Quadrant.
1: That was my that was my first Robert Kiyosaki book. So I agree. I, nice. <laughs> All right, last question. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Meaning, where do you see you and your business in five or 10 years?
2: I see myself uh, more removed from the day-to-day I am slowly doing that. This past January, I went down to Florida and I competed with my horses for two weeks and a year ago, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, even though I do believe in the concept that you should create a business, not another job for yourself. I a hundred percent agree with that whole philosophy. It does take some time to develop a full business and not be involved and, and, um, you know, when you're still starting out and, and not starting out, but like, I mean, I'm 13 years into this and I'm, I'm using that saying, I guess, but you you're still putting together all the pieces to make sure that everything's protected. We are dealing with so many investors and multi-million dollar businesses, it is very important to me that things are done the correct way. So putting together all of those systems, putting together the right people, having the right backups in place is really important. So in five years from now, I I'm confident that we will have all of the right people in place, the right systems in place. I think we'll uh, be into development at that time as well. We've already started offering on development. So hopefully we'll be able to see a few deals in five years go full cycle in development um, and possibly another arm to our business. But I'd really like to have a little bit more of an arm's length so I can focus more on I'm more of the innovator side of things. So I'd like to give myself more opportunities that I can really use that skill.
1: Okay. So what would be the best way uh, for people to get a hold of you if they want to contact you for either, uh, I think you might have a mentoring program or just to reach out for social media, et cetera. What's the best way to contact you, Ashley?
2: You can find me on Instagram at Badash Investor. My uh, apartment business Uh. is...
1: Bad Ash, A S H. (laughs) And
2: my apartment business is called Bar Down, B A R D O W N investments.com. So you can find me either on uh, that platform or on Instagram.
0: Awesome. Good stuff. So, guys, we hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Cashflow Kings podcast. Uh, In between episodes, feel free to check us out on Instagram or on Facebook under the handle of the Cashflow Kings. Cheers to your success.
1: The Cashflow Kings program is for basic entertainment purposes only. We do not give official legal, tax, or investment advice.